Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. All right, so here we are. If you have a copy of the Word of God, if you open it up today, excuse me, you'll see that there is a superscription above this passage, this heading, and it reads, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And so what do you do when you come to something like that? Um, For me, early on in my faith, that would create a lot of disturbance to me, going, "Uh uh-oh, I always heard the Bible had errors in it, and now it seems to be admitting it. Like, what's going on? What is going on with this passage? Is there something wrong with it? And also, one of the most famous passages in John chapter, at the end of chapter seven and chapter eight, the the woman that's caught in adultery, there's that same superscription that is um, where Jesus forgives her and runs off the accusers and draws in the sand, and neither do I continue. You remember that passage? That part also isn't found in the earliest manuscripts. And so we're stuck with what do we do with this passage? And so I'll explain this briefly and then preach the gospel. But before I do that, I'd like to take just one minute and just center myself and pray for us as a church family. Okay. It's October 1st, by the way. Holy cow. All right. Of all the years that have gone by really fast, this one is... This one broke records, I think. Okay. Father, thank you for today, for our time together, to gather specifically around the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus, you're our king, our savior, and we love you, and it is so good to be together. We ask this morning that you would center our minds and our hearts on you, We pray for the 10,000 things that could distract us this morning. Would you take preeminence over everything, over family or work or relationships? And Jesus, would you just be the center for the next few minutes? Holy Spirit, come, add your blessing to the word that you've inspired. Apply your gospel to us. Change us, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord, amen. Okay, so with this superscription that says this is not found in the earliest text, for me, as I mentioned a moment ago, that would have created a lot of uh, unrest in me early on in my faith. Now, at age 43, I find it to be so overwhelmingly comforting, I just love it. I, I love the fact that our Bible is even the translators are telling us the truth. You see, propaganda always makes the author the hero of the story. And yet in the Gospels, we find the Gospel writers, the evangelists themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all exposing themselves for who they really are. They're men that fail Jesus consistently. Propaganda doesn't work like that. And so we still have to answer the question, though, but what do you do with this passage? What do you mean it wasn't found in the earliest manuscripts? Well, the way we go about answering that question uh, is you answer it both externally and internally. So 
So here's what I mean. Externally, you have to look around in extra biblical text and into the early centuries of the early church and to see, was Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20 around? And how much of it was around and who had access to it and so on. So externally, you need to know that 95% of the ancient manuscripts actually do include Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. The two oldest manuscripts of Mark do not. Like, oh, what do we do? How, how early was it around exactly? Well, Irenaeus, the early church father, you might have come across his name at something along the way. Irenaeus, in the middle of the uh, second century, he was aware that Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20 were around and in existence and circulating in the early church. So externally, 95% of the documents contain this passage except for the two oldest. Internally is where we have to go inside the actual, the, the New Testament itself and start asking all kinds of questions about lexical usage of words, syntax, grammar, and then start exploring other, other passages throughout the, the New Testament and see a few things and see if, if this actually checks out or not. The way things were accepted in the New Testament, how did we get our New Testament? There were four major criteria that would have either omitted or included a New Testament book. And the four are the following. First, the, bu the book had to be written by an eyewitness or somebody in association with one of the original apostles. Second, it means it would have had to have been written in the first century, not the second century. Uh, third, it had to be widely accepted, not just in one church, say over in Corinth, but it had to be a letter that would have been accepted broadly amongst all the churches in the Roman Empire. And then fourth, it would have had to have been concursive with the Old Testament. It couldn't come in and introduce something entirely new or contradictory. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, actually meets all of those criteria. Now, there are some interesting things that happen in Mark chapter 16, 9 to 20, especially about language. There's about 15 new words that Mark didn't use throughout the earlier part of his gospel. He introduces there's a lot of new language. They call Jesus Lord. That was a word that was used in the church, but Mark doesn't use it anywhere in his gospel. Like, huh, so who wrote this? Well, the best scholarship, scholarship suggests that it's probably an early copyist or copyists that is in the company of the apostles or at least within the first generation of those apostles that's now taken what's missing at the end of chapter 16, verse 8, and has decided to round off the gospel by borrowing from all the other existing gospels. And so when you read through 16, 9 to 20, what you find is going, oh, that's over in John chapter 20. Oh, that's over in Luke chapter 24. Oh, that's Acts chapter 22. Oh, that's Acts chapter 17. And you start going, oh, I see what they're doing. They're synthesizing everything that's going on in the New Testament and rounding off the gospel of Mark in a way that would have made sense in the early church. And the reason why they would do something like this is because at the end of verse 8 in chapter 16, it ends with this resurrection account of Jesus, but the women are all afraid, right? At the beginning of Mark, it says the gospel, the son of God. And then it ends with, and Jesus was up from the dead and everyone was afraid. It's like, no, 
I don't know if that's what he was aiming for. And so the copyists synthesize a lot of material and provide that to us in verses 9 through 20. There you go. That's like 5 million pages of reading. You're welcome. Summarized for you. All right. So now, here you go. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. He rose early. Okay, this is the foundation of the church. Not a building, not a brand, not a personality, not some guy or a group of guys. The foundation of the church is solely built on Jesus himself. The resurrection of Christ himself is the foundation, it's the point, it's the purpose of the entire church that Jesus' physical body that was crucified on Friday was physically resurrected from the dead. Jesus was not revived, Jesus was not resuscitated, Jesus did not reincarnate, Jesus was resurrected from the grave on Sunday morning and that's why Christians historically ever since that Sunday till now are worshiping Jesus on Sunday morning. Your faith is in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so that's why the early copyists would go, hold on, Paul said our faith is in vain. If Christ has not been resurrected from the dead, let's go back and summarize everything that's happened. And they add this in at the end of chapter 16 to make it abundantly clear that the gospel is not Jesus died. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sin in our place and was resurrected as the firstborn of the dead. And the church now lives in response to that ongoing reality. All right, so Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared first. I love this. He appeared first to who? Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. All right, so he appears to Mary Magdalene first. If you go read it in John chapter 20, this whole account, it has about 18 verses that tell you all about this. But Mary Magdalene, the the early copyist is remembering, oh yeah, In Luke chapter 7, this is the woman that had been possessed by seven demons. Now, whether it's a literal number or not, we don't know. The idea is that seven represents completion. This woman had been completely dominated by spiritual forces of evil and then had been made completely whole and clean by one encounter with Jesus. She's the least of these She's dead last. And of course, in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, who does he go to first? Not Pilate in your face and not even the emperor of Rome. He goes and finds the least and the last and appears to her first. Because that's how Jesus works. The last will be first. And of course, this is the third time she's actually showed up at Jesus' tomb to anoint his body and so on. Why? Because she who's forgiven much loves much. While the rest of the apostles were afraid to go anywhere near that tomb for fear of being seen and then tried just like Jesus would, she had already given her life over into Jesus' hands. So whether they found her and took her life or not, it was of no account because she is now hidden completely in Christ. (laughs) So of course he's like, Mary. Yes, it's like, of course this swept the whole world. Oh my gosh. All right. So Mary Magdalene, verse 10 She went and told those who had been with him. And they mourned and wept. 
John's gospel tells us that it's actually John and Peter that are the ones that are really in the morning here. The inner three guys, Peter, James, and John. Again, not propaganda. Um, they're mourning and they're weeping. She comes into the room and she tells them, I've seen him. The three times that he predicted that he was gonna rise from the dead, he did. He's up from the dead. And they're there in the middle of their sobbing and weeping, just like you and me would be also. I mean, you've got to imagine if you're sitting there following Jesus for three years, like Duarte, if me and you, Duarte is one of our fishermen in the church. Thank you, Duarte. Um, but if we were hanging out with Jesus for like three years, and then all of a sudden he's publicly executed, I mean, you and I would be sitting there like weeping, mourning, scratching our heads going, dude, did you not see him when he spit in the mud and, like, and, and healed the blind? We saw that, right? Like, yeah. And we saw him walk on the water? Yeah. And we saw him feed those 5,000 people and then 4,000 people? Yeah, yeah. And he raised the dead? Yeah. Okay, so I saw everything you saw for the last 36 months. We built our whole lives, our family, our soul is all tied to that guy in the, he's in the grave. We've lost everything. We would, we would be devastated too. So they're mourning, they're weeping. Mary's there with that look on her face like, quit crying, guys. <laughs> I'm not lying, but listen. It says in verse 11, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. I just don't buy it. Why not? Why not? Because people don't resurrect from the dead, that's why. They just don't. In fact, and this isn't the only time this shows up, at the end of Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew chapter 28, you know, the famous Great Commission passage. Listen to this verse. This is one of these verses that build my faith, even though it's all about doubt. <laughs> when the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. This is after his resurrection. They're looking at him going, mm-hmm, I don't know, man. They're a lot like us because, again, people don't rise from the dead. Going, my eyes have to be playing tricks on me at this point. This is, this is too much. This is too crazy. This is too crazy. <laughs> they wouldn't believe it. And not only would they not believe the report, they wouldn't believe her, her report. Remember, this is a woman whose testimony is not accepted in court testifying and so her her testimony wasn't considered valid and these guys were rolling like traditional Jewish men we don't one we don't believe that story and two we your testimony is sus, suspicious just because of you being a woman this is one of the strongest apologetics for the resurrection by the way because of course it's a woman testifying and the gospel writers rather than going and he appeared to me first Nope. Who did he go to first? Mary. And they include that because they were more interested in telling the truth than preserving social and cultural norms. And I love that. <sighs> okay. 
Verse 12, after these things, he appeared in another form. <laughs> and now it's getting weird, okay. He appeared in another form to two of them. In Luke chapter 24, I marked it. I have to read you these like 20 verses because this is bananas. But you're gonna love it. Listen to this. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that happened. So there's two kind of secret disciples here. While they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So he bumps into these guys on the road. I just, this is what I would do if I were resurrected. Like, ah, now I'm going to play with some people. All right, so anyway, but he, he walks with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's the conversation that you're holding as you walk together? Like, what are you guys talking about? And then one, uh, it says, and, and they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? And he said to them, what things? <laughs> like, what happened this weekend? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and the rulers, they delivered him up, they condemned him to death, and they crucified him. And we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our own company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they didn't see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with the prophets and Moses, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, all the things according to himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. For it's tomorrow for... For it's, it's evening, and the day is now spent. And so he went in to stay with them. And while he was at the table with them, he took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road? God, I hope that happens to you. while he opened to us the scriptures and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with him gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon and they told what had happened on the road and how he is known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's just the, that's just the best. I love the, the surprise by Jesus on the road. And then he's going to act like, well, I got to be going. Like, no, no, stick around. He's like, well, what the heck? I'll stick around for dinner. Breaks the bread. And they, oh, it's you. And then he disappears. It's just like, this is perfect. Oh. It's hard not to think 
Gosh, Jesus has a sense of humor after he's beaten Satan and demons and death and hell and the wrath of God. There's nothing but humor left. Real joy. So, they went back and told the rest. They didn't believe. In verse 14, it says, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they at as they were reclining at the table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So Jesus had a hard conversation with them, going, not only did you not believe me when I told you I was gonna rise from the dead, you didn't believe the person I sent to you. I need you to trust my message and my messengers. So he rebukes them. Post-resurrection, which is showing us here that to follow Jesus is going to involve some necessary rebukes from him from time to time. And if we find ourselves following a Jesus that doesn't rebuke us, we're not following the Jesus of Scripture at all. He does say things like, I don't agree with your lifestyle. I don't agree with your choices. I don't think that you're seeing things right. Like He has no problem just getting in our faces and saying hard words, rebuking words, saying you're absolutely wrong about some things. Because that's what a Lord would do. He wouldn't pander. He would just tell us the truth. And so he does. And he rebukes the guys. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all of creation. Go into all the world. You've heard that before, yeah? In Matthew's gospel, go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is Mark's synopsis of that passage there. And they did. And so this week, I decided to look around where the gospel went around the world and just put together a brief timeline for you. Uh, Can we pull that slide up, Mark? So in roughly AD 30, Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected. 50 days after, the Holy Spirit descended in the book of Acts, and the gospel began to sweep the world. In 42 AD, Mark took the gospel to Egypt. In 49 AD, Paul took the gospel to Turkey and then to Greece. In 52 AD, Thomas went to India. In 100 AD, the first Christians were discovered in Algeria. In 150 AD, the first Christians were reported in Portugal and Morocco. In 174, the first believers were in Austria. By 200 AD, Christians were in Switzerland and Belgium. By 280, the first rural churches began to emerge in Italy, meaning that the gospel was no longer just for the city people only, but it was actually getting out into rural places. In 350 AD, there were nearly 32 million Christians in the Roman Empire, 300 years 32 million followers of Jesus, and you could be executed by the state for saying this. All right. 432, St. Patrick takes the gospel to Ireland. 635, the first missionaries go to China. And now China sends us their missionaries. 635 AD, 650 AD, the church is in the Netherlands. By 828, the first Christians are found in Slovakia. In 900 AD, they arrive in Norway. In 1200 AD, the Bible was now available in 22 different languages. 1498, the first Christians in Kenya were baptized. 
between 1558 and 1562, during the Protestant Reformation, nearly 2,000 churches were planted in France. In 1740, nearly 80% of, of Christians, <laughs> if you're American, you're not Christian. Whoa. <laughs> but you can be. Okay. Oh. I read a lot of news this week. 80% of Americans were in church in 1890. Spurgeon helped plant over 200 churches in Britain and then sent planters to Australia, Africa, and the Americas in 1985. After 25 years of missionary church planting, South Korea grew to over 6.5 million believers. They went into all the world telling the gospel. And it's here in Seattle today. I was texting my mom this morning. She's in Romania right now, serving with a team telling the gospel. The gospel is getting all over the world because these men decided that their lives were not worth saving because they'd already been saved and the rest was worth giving away. So they went into all the world and shared the good news of Jesus. And whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, this part here can sound like it's putting baptism and belief on the same playing field. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Oh, so if I don't get baptized, what happens? Well, Mark follows it with, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. The idea here is that he offsets baptism and and belief, elevating belief over baptism. Baptism is a demonstration of faith and belief in Jesus. This is Mark's comment on John chapter three, the famous passage, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? In Mark chapter three in verse 18, it actually says very plainly, Jesus is found saying, whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever does not believe, condemnation rests on him. And so Mark is saying very clearly, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Church, Jesus is not just worth considering, Jesus is worth following, obeying with everything in us. He and he alone is our savior. There are not many roads to heaven. There is one door and it is Jesus himself. What would I be condemned for? In Seattle, for goodness sake, I do it all right. I vote right, obviously. Uh, I recycle, because I have to. Uh, like, I do lots of things. I, I'm good, like I give to charities, like I'm a decent person. What would I get condemned for? And the scripture comes back and says, because the wages of sin is death. And all of us have gone astray. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. If you don't know Jesus or trust Jesus, I'd love to introduce you to him today. In fact, there's a lot of people in this room that would love to do that. But that's why we're here. Because we want to see people meet Jesus. And not just be saved from judgment, 
but to have abundant life now. Part of eternal life is eternal, meaning that it breaks in now, not just later. And these signs, and this is where you can see Mark beginning to summarize, or the copyist rather, summarizing all of the New Testament. And these signs, especially the book of Acts, will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up serpents in their hands, and if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they'll recover. This is found all throughout the New Testament. Speaking in tongues, healing people. And I know you're all wondering, go, tell me about that snake part, though. (laughs) Is this some, like, Appalachia, get out the banjo part? (laughs) No. As fun as that sounds, no. Just kidding, get the snakes. I'm just, no. Um... What's going on here? Here's what Mark is indicating here, or Jesus is commenting on here. In Acts, there's an occasion where Paul is on this island of Malta, and Paul's actually bitten by a snake and doesn't die. In the early centuries of the church, Christians, as they were being persecuted for following Jesus, one of the ways in which Christians were oftentimes put to death was through being forced to drink snake venom. And there's dozens of accounts in which they survived. (laughs) And then there's this other way of looking at the passage too. And you get to pick. Um, If you remember at the very beginning of the Bible, Satan is found slithering into the garden and he begins to introduce false teaching, heresy, something that the church in Rome was actually battling a lot of. The false teaching had to do with, did God say, Did God say? And the snake bit Adam and Eve. And this could be Jesus' way of saying, you can can thrive as a follower of Jesus in a heretical, untrue, unsound world and even drink their poison into you and still be okay because he is keeping you. So it could be interpreted metaphorically. Now, if you drink poison today, Don't come talking to me at all because I'm not encouraging that. Okay, okay. Henry Nouwen, one of the great pastors is now with the Lord. He was a Harvard professor and a professor at Notre Dame, taught in the divinity schools there. And halfway through his career, he quit his career and decided to go work at a... um, a community in, in Canada known as La Arche. And many of you may have heard of this, but he served a, a community that was very much so pushed to the margins. Uh, many people with physical handicaps and various kinds of disabilities, most having severe mental handicaps. And as he talks about his ministry there, he walked in on the first day and realized he was no longer the great Henry Nowen professor of so-and-so. And he writes about it and says, they didn't know who I was because they couldn't read my books. And he walks in and he begins to give his life away. And one thing that Henry, after spending several years in this particular community, he began to write letters and books, especially to pastors. And in one of his books, he begins to 
call attention to people who serve Jesus that want to show off and get a lot of attention in his name? Can we pull up what he has to say about showing off? Because the first temptation Jesus faced, by the way, was to show off, throw yourself off the the corner of the temple, and Jesus resists. Listen to what he says. I'm deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant (laughs) and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. That's the way Jesus came to reveal God's love. The great message that we have to carry as ministers of God's word and followers of Jesus is that God loves us, not because of what we do or accomplish, but because God has created and redeemed us in love and has chosen us to proclaim that love as the true source of all human life. So when we see a passage like this where Jesus says, even if they were to drink poison, they would survive, this is not Jesus going, now get out there and show off in my name. Henry says, as Christians, we sign up for basically being irrelevant, but not just irrelevant. In and of ourselves, we really are, but we stand on the ground of our own brokenness and the forgiveness and the power of Jesus, and we offer our own vulnerable selves, saying, this is what I have to offer. I have Jesus to offer, and Jesus only. To stand and offer your own vulnerable self, made whole by the love of God and Jesus. Okay, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. This is Mark telling us about Jesus' famous ascension. And he sits down at the right hand of God. And this is one of the biggest signals. When Jesus sits down, He is not saying my work is totally over. His earthly ministry is done, but now his heavenly ministry has begun. Like Jesus did not get to heaven and finally go, oh my gosh, and look over at the Father and go, the 12 disciples you gave me, what was that? (laughs) I couldn't take another minute with those guys. They They are rough. He didn't sit down because he thought, gosh, the demons of hell were a fight. That was really hard to overcome Satan and his temptation. And he didn't sit there in exhaustion and put his head in his hands and go, ah, after the resurrection for those 50 days, that was a lot of work, walking around, having to prove myself to everybody by eating fish and all the rest and showing them He doesn't sit on his throne in exhaustion. He sits on his throne as a signal to you and to me that his job is done in accomplishing salvation, and yet he sits down because he sits down to get more done on our behalf. Let's pull up Hebrews chapter seven. Look at this. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives. 
He always lives to do what? To intercede, to plead on behalf of his people. 1 John chapter 2 says we have an advocate with God the Father that as Jesus sits on his throne, every condemnation that comes before God on our behalf of our sin, Jesus says, Father, I've taken care of all that. I intercede on their behalf. That Jesus lives to pray and be and advocate on our side as the justified. He always lives. So when you see Jesus seated on his throne, it's not because he was exhausted. He is seated. He is comfortable, exalted over all creation as he communes with God on our behalf, applying his finished work and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to his people. He always lives. So as you pray to Jesus, envision him on his throne. As you commune with him, he's communing with the Father through the Holy Spirit. He intercedes. He stands in the place. He goes between us and our sin and the Father and makes everything right so that we might truly belong in the presence of God. Don't let your sin or some other critic out there say you don't deserve to pray or you should delay or walk it off and keep your distance from God for some period of time because you got yourself in a mess. The whole hope of the gospel is God loves messy people and always runs toward them. Always, not away from them. Jesus lives to intercede on your behalf. That is good news. Okay, last verse. And they went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. They did not wait for the gospel to only be proclaimed in a church building on a Sunday morning. They did it everywhere. Their workplaces, marketplace, with their family, friends, whoever. They shared the good news of Jesus. He works signs and wonders through them. Who could you share the gospel with? And I know it could be like, I know you have, to, you have to say that, Pastor. I do have to say it. Because your neighbor needs to hear it. I dare you to run the risk of looking weird and saying something at work or with one of your friends or at a show this week or wherever you find yourself to say, you know what? Hey, here's the thing. Apply what we sing all the time. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Say that in your own language. Jesus has changed my life. He is the foundation of my life. And I want you to know him. The good news of the gospel is that it broke out of heaven into the world through the virgin birth of Jesus, was put on display through the life and ministry of Jesus, and now in his resurrection, and giving of the Holy Spirit, he continues to give the good news that God loves sinners and brings us in 
to his family. I hope you know you belong based solely on the good work of Jesus. Thanks for listening. And that is the gospel of Mark. Amen. All right, we're done. Let's go. Let's, um, let's pray. And um, as we pray, um, yeah, let's just commune with God for a moment. And then, and then I'll invite the band forward and we'll continue. Lord Jesus, we love you. We reverence you as our king. Would you work your gospel so deep down into our souls that we would find ourselves unable to basically talk about anything else? Would you so saturate our minds and our hearts that that your work and your word would just come through us in our workplace and with our friends and with our neighbors? Help us to be the faithfully present community you've called us to be. Holy Spirit, we love you and we welcome you. Guide us, we ask. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.